You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. The 3CR Gardening Show is coming to you today from the Woi Wurrung Nation. We acknowledge the Wurundjeri people as the traditional owners of this land. We recognise the practices of care and cultivation of the land and waters by the First Peoples and pay our respects to their elders past and present. Wherever you are and wherever you garden, we encourage you to know whose land you're on. You are tuned into the 3CR Gardening Show for another beautiful Sunday morning in October. Welcome to Absolutely Everyone. I am Chloe Foster and joining me in the studio today is Chris Williams, lecturer at University of Melbourne's Burnley campus, Chloe Thompson, horticulturalist and Sprout School founder, and Sandra Swartz, landscape architect. What a team. Hello. Hello. Morning, Chloe. Good morning. It's a little bit grey and we had a little bit of a typical Melbourne Four Seasons in one day yesterday. <laughs> it was a bit, wasn't it? It was a bit. I was up at Loretta Child's Open Garden. Ooh. I'm going to try and get there today. I would recommend it. If you Have you been before? I think I have, but I need to almost go to recognise it. But it looked like in the photos it's changed quite a bit as well, so... Because yeah. it'd be a good six, seven years ago now. So. Yeah, she's it's so she's done an incredible job. She's an incredible landscaper and landscape designer, and her garden reflects what she what she does. does and yeah. the rock work is just absolutely stunning, and yeah. beautiful combinations of plants, mm. just gorgeous. Lots of gastrolobium and what else? Veron- uh, Veronica, beautiful veggie garden. Pretty. Very pretty. Mm. Very, very pretty. And I think, and she bought it in last week too, um, Grevillea and Lycariana. Are you guys familiar with I was with just that listening one? to that episode on the way here. <laughs> <laughs> I was admiring them last week and I put a photo on my Instagram and I saw Stephen Wells also posted a photo um, of that species in the garden. He went there yesterday as well. Yep. And the, those Grevilleas are just absolutely gorgeous and such an underutilised species. Mm, keep an eye out for them. Yes, enjoy. And the sun came out for her yesterday. It was a bit drizzly in the morning, yeah. but it was it was sunny in the afternoon. <laughs> so congrats to Loretta. There's, gosh, there's so much work that goes into an open garden. Yep. 
Have any of you... I volunteer at the gate for them. Do you? Mm. Yeah. And I have done the selector training but haven't haven't opened a garden yet. So yeah. down the track. They've asked yeah. me to open my place. It's a bit hilly. It's a bit hilly, yeah. And we sort of, we've, they've come out and we've had a look and we've tried to work out how we could make it work. And because of the lack of parking and the extreme slope, it would obviously be, you know, limited to walking access only. And we also think we'd have to do it almost as a group booking Mm. Um, so I was just listening like to your episode where you discussed that last oh, there time. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, park, parking's always a really big yeah. one. Like even gardens that are more accessible to wheeled access are a real problem if you don't have parking nearby. Yep. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I did it twice, two years in a row, 2010, 2011, yeah. an edible yeah. landscape in Armadale, and it was fantastic but absolutely exhausting. Exhausting, yeah. Yep. Non-stop talking for... I don't know. What is it? Six, seven hours. Yeah. Yep. And mm. the the prep leading up to. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Uh, how much time did you spend getting ready for it? Just yeah, just vast amounts of time. <laughs> yeah. And also, I, I, I don't think it was a mistake because it was good fun. But yeah. I did a plant sale as well mm. in both years, and so then there's getting the stock, making it look fantastic. Um, yeah. Just just that level of organisation. Yeah. yeah. So. Uh, Perhaps never again. I don't know. <laughs> Hopefully not never. No. Maybe just a while. Yeah, just a while. It is a very special thing that we have, you know, our Open Gardens organisation. Yep. And we're so lucky that, you know, people like you guys go, oh, yeah, I'll let a whole heap of strangers wander around <laughs> my garden. Yep. Uh, and, you know, you get to see these absolutely beautiful spaces and, and yeah and predominantly residential i think that's yeah, what makes it special so they are yep. places that you wouldn't get to normally you might right. you know, yeah. like if you follow you guys on insta social media you, you'll find out about it or yep. like stephen wells garden you'll see it but being there is something quite different so mm. true it's always nice to be yeah 100 Mm. sharing of a lot of space. the a lot of the other states have open garden schemes as well um and it's something i often tell people about in sprout school and they just didn't even realise that that was possible. Mm. And I'm such a huge fan of, you know, go and find out what's open in your area, have that mm. snoop inside the garden. Yeah. And it's so much inspiration. You know, if you're getting a, looking at a garden in your locality, it's just full of so much inspiration. Plants that work in your climate, yeah. plants that work yep. in your soil. You can often chat to the gardener as well. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, so huge good. Huge wealth of information. Huge wealth of info. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Very, very lucky to have it. All right, let's get to some community announcements a little bit earlier, but that's okay. Oh, my. I lost my papers. Uh, okay, so Sunday the 8th, no, that was last weekend. <laughs> Here I am. Lardner Park Garden and Home Ex Expo is still on today. So Lardner is near Warrigal if you want to head out there. Ben and Kerry Brooker. Um, from Treasured Perennials. Ben was on recently um, talking about his plants. They are there at Lardner Park um, this weekend at the expo for that. So you can go in and say hello to them. Um, from the 21st of October till the 7th of November, the Country Farm Perennials and Seedscape Open Garden Fortnight is happening. That is our lovely Meryl Johnson who comes in quite often. We love her and we love what she does. So um, their open garden is going for, what would that be, a few weeks. Um, have a look on the Seedscape website for more information there. Uh, on the 21st and 22nd of October weekend, 
The Royal Botanic Gardens Melbourne Friends have their plant sale, which is also the same weekend as the Cranbourne Friends. So you can go up to Melbourne Botanic Gardens or Cranbourne Botanic Gardens and both of those Growing Friends groups have their plant sales that weekend. Uh, you can check both of those groups' websites uh, a little bit closer to the date uh, for plant lists of what they've got there. If you are a member of the Cranbourne Friends group, uh, I do know that they sent out an email earlier on this week with a plant list attached to that email, so you can check that out there. Uh, later this morning, we'll have Lucille Strawn from the Melbourne Friends join us to chat about uh, some of the plants that they've got on sale uh, at the Melbourne Friends next weekend. So lots of plants for sale then. The 28th and 29th of October is the Fernie Creek Hort Society Flower Festival. So this is their spring show. And in November on the 11th and 12th is the Yarra Valley Plant Fair at Larkman's Nurseries in Quail Road, Wandon. So they're a fantastic supporter of the of the gardening show here so we are very excited for the plant fair coming up uh chloe can i add one please for the 20, 21st well, i've got one time too you go yeah. Yeah, I, just because <laughs> you've already said the date and it's also um at the royal botanic gardens so um i've just had a quick look and it doesn't look like it's sold out yet it's a tick price ticket so 25 dollars. it's an event at the Royal Botanic Gardens, Melbourne, and it's a talk from Tim Gill and Dimity, Dr. Dimity Williams, who's just released a book called Nature, Our Medicine. The talk topic is Children, Cities, Nature and the Planet, Joining the Dots, and it's um, from 9am for four hours. So it's, um, yeah, I think $25 well worth spending, and that is on the 21st, so it's the Saturday. And I just thought I'm, I've booked my ticket and I'm, I thought I'd share because it's, it's all about risk-taking and connection to nature for children, so within that setting. Oh, very good. Let's get onto that topic later. Um, sorry, booking through the Melbourne yeah, Gar so if you RBG just, website? Yes. So yeah. if, you, if you type in uh, RBGV uh, and even Dimity Williams, it, it comes up, but it should be able to find the form. Yep. Chloe? Yes, and my edition was for the same weekend as the plant fair, so the 11th and 12th of November. I am emceeing the State Rose and Garden Show down at Werribee State Rose Garden. Wicked. Yeah, so I've been to that event a few times, um, not as the MC, so MC will be really fun, but um, it's a great day out in the State Rose Garden, which if you haven't been, it's right next to the Werribee Park Mansion. Lovely. Yeah, so really nice day out, really fun, obviously lots of roses, but other plants for sale as well. And we've got some great speakers up on the stage, I think including our lovely AB Bishop as well. She's making an appearance on one of the days. Is she? Yes. So yeah, good fun. And if you do come, it's on 10 till 4, both Saturday and the Sunday. That's okay. All right. Oh, gosh. <clears throat> Good timing, throat. All right, a couple more. Uh, the Yarra Edge Nursery, which is a nursery at Melbourne Polytechnic's Fairfield campus, have increased their opening hours lately. They are now open from Tuesday to Sunday, 8.30 to 4 p.m. Huge range of um, ornamental plants, but edible plants and indoor plants as well. Uh, so you can have a look into go into the glass house there and see what they've got for indoors um, and lots of tomatoes and uh, veggies at the moment as well okay open gardens victoria 
next weekend is a regional or semi-regional botanic uh, botanic um, open garden happening. This property is called Rokeby. It's a historic uh, property in Talarook, um, settled in 1837 as part of a 27,000 acre Talarook run. The, home, the current homestead goes back to the 1870s. Um, the garden has been described as a private country residence with a wonderful sense of calm and loose open plantings. They've got a free draining granitic soil and an average rainfall of only 550 mil. There's many microclimates that have been created in the garden to grow plants that would normally not thrive. In the garden-esque style, there's paths meandering through diverse plantings of over 1,500 species with beautiful vistas over to the countryside. There's a number of sculptures and water features uh, standing there as focal points. Lots of spring flowers, including wisteria, roses and bulbs. A highlight of the garden is an ancient Aboriginal ring tree um, grafted hundreds of years ago by the Tongarong people. The garden is $10 entry for adults, $6 for students and under 18 is free. You can book tickets through the Open Gardens Victoria website, uh, through their tri booking system. So if you type in to a Google search OGV Rokeby, and that's R O K E B Y, five Upper Goulburn, 500 Upper Golden, Goulburn Road, Talarook. Oh, that was a terrible reading of the address. Let me try that again. <laughs> 500 Upper Goulburn Road, Talarook, 3659, and they're open from 10 a.m. till 4.30. What a great excuse to head out into the regions for the day. Tellerook is halfway between Seymour and Broadford, I believe. Yep. So that's next Sunday, the next Saturday and Sunday, the 21st and the 22nd of October. And you, our lucky listeners who have tuned in early, this is your chance to ring in now and grab a double entry pass to Rokeby next weekend. Speak to Burn and she'll tell you how you can get those tickets. So if you want to grab the Rokeby tickets, the number is 94190155. And if you have any other questions for us or you just want to join in the chat, give us a call on 94190155 to come on air with us. If you want to send us a text message, the number is 0488 809 if you want to send a text message. And one last announcement, another uh, plant sale. This is the Friends of Burnley Gardens on Saturday, the 28th of October from 10.30 to 1pm. Uh, this is on the Burnley campus of Uni Melb. Uh, parking is on Yarra Boulevard. A huge range and selection of plants from natives, indoors, perennials, bulbs, salvias, succulents and more. The Friends of Burnley Gardens will be offering um, tours throughout the historic gardens that day as well. And the CWA with, will have a pop-up stall selling a selection of cakes and scones. <laughs> what a bonus. Um, so that's Saturday the 28th of October. If you miss the Growing Friends plant sales next weekend too. A couple of big weekends coming up. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I will just encourage listeners again, Loretta Childs, our lovely Loretta who comes on, who's been coming on to the gardening show for years and years. Her garden is open uh, again today as well. 
she's up in Christmas Hills on Skyline Road. If you want to find out the address for that, because it's not coming to my head at the moment, type in um, Big Hills, which is the name of her property, um, Open Gardens Victoria into a Google search, and it should take you to the page as the first as the first link there. So there we go, community announcements. Now, Chris, you've been doing a lot of travelling, a bit of travelling oh, this year. I have. In a tropical or somewhat tropical area. Is it Mauritius you've been in? Absolutely, yeah. I was going to say you've done your research, but it's all over my social media. <laughs> so, um, yeah, no, thanks, Chloe. Yeah, I have. I've been to Mauritius. That was absolutely extraordinary during winter. What were you doing over there? Yeah, great time to go, by the way. <laughs> yeah, well, it was... Um, it was really just to – so I was very lucky. A, a former student friend of mine, you know, is from Mauritius, Twidge. And um, so I got the invitation and, and to come with uh, uh, another friend. And um, it was a combination of looking at the natural landscape and the plants to go snorkeling, look at the coral, and to really get immersed in the culture. And, and one of the things for me was a long, long time ago, I, did, I studied Hindi at Melbourne Uni, obviously, the, you know, one of the main languages of India. It's quite obscure. And so I'd been trying to revive it on Duolingo. And of course, in Mauritius, they speak French, they speak Creole, and they speak English, but they also a substantial proportion of the population speaks Hindi. So I got to speak yeah. my pretty bad Hindi to uh, locals as well. But um, look, the plant side of it's interesting and it actually relates to the prop that I brought, you know, the plant prop, which is good. good. So Mauritius was famous for its sugarcane growing and there's still huge areas of sugarcane because um, it, was a, it was an uninhabited island. That's uh, where the dodo is from originally. So, um, you know, and for those who don't know, it's just east of Madagascar, so in the southern portion of Africa. And, to, yes, to cut a very long story short, the Portuguese popped in, then the Dutch tried to do a few things, then the French, and then during the Napoleonic Wars, the Brits said to the French, no, we'll have it because it's on the way to India, it's strategic, you can keep reunion. And um, then they really ramped up sugarcane. So there was already enslaved people from Africa there. And then when slavery uh, was outlawed, the British said, right, we still need cheap labour. So they created the indentured servitude system and brought hundreds of thousands of people from various parts of India. So anyway, it's got this extraordinary history, um, rich biodiversity like a lot of isolated islands have, um, a lot of it obliterated um, by creating sugarcane farms. And um, so in a really bizarre negative way, one of the most fascinating parts of the, of the place is the invasive species. Um, and so for a lot of a lot of listeners would know strawberry guava, which is something we try and grow in Melbourne because yeah. it's delicious. Mm. And when you're there, and no exaggeration, if you go to the natural forest for a hike or a bushwalk, you see strawberry guava infestation because it's from South America. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. Sorry, strawberry guava from South America. Yeah. You see it there on a scale that is just hard to believe. So you'd never go hungry, so at least in terms of fruit. It would be a perfect climate for it over there, or a similar climate where it grows in South America? Yeah, I, yes, in short. But no natural predators? No, apparently not. And yeah. and, um, and the thing that really amazed me um, was that it was growing in wet areas, dry areas, up slopes. And so, you know, um, at Burnley we have this, at least in our Hort bubble of teaching. We have this thing called the Burnley Plant Guide, which mm-hmm. goes through tolerances that plants have. And of course, mm-hmm. with strawberry guava, the entry sort of would suggest that it doesn't like wet areas, or you know. And so then I thought, hang on a second, this thing, 
this plastic, it'll grow anywhere. <laughs> but but if you've ever experienced, say, privet on the north shore of Sydney or, um, you know, if you've ever seen a woody weed infestation that is truly scary, this is, you know, what strawberry guava is like uh, in Mauritius. But anyway, the place is much more interesting than that. It's got it's got these beautiful old volcanic mountains. It's quite a surreal landscape. Um the closest I can think of in Australia, the Glasshouse Mountains or the Warren Bungles, if okay. you know them. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's just very beautiful. And the, the mix of kind of African and Indian culture is really fascinating. And the and the French stuff too. Like, every, mm. <laughs> I mean, it's the French, lots of French television. Really? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it's a, just, it's a genuinely, mul- it's, it's almost like the when I say the original multicultural country, it's because everyone's been mixed together. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, they've created this republic out of that. But, yeah, really worth going. It's a bit of a long-haul flight. How yeah. long did you go for, Chris? Uh, three weeks. Yeah, well. yeah, no, it was it was fa- absolutely fantastic. On your Instagram, I feel like you were there for two months. Yeah, no, I did. I know. <laughs> cold, cold winter. And I'll, I'll give a brief shout-out to the other island of Mauritius. So part of the nation is an island called Rodrigue. Ooh which uh, was very lucky to get flights to go there. And it's only about 40,000 people. So I think Mauritius is about a million. So it's mm-hmm. about the size of Adelaide. Um, Rodrigue has this strange uh, history. It was, a, it was a kind of prison for recalcitrant uh, enslaved people, so-called. And um, it, it's oh, obscure in an extraordinary way. Um, and um, goats, lots of lemon trees everywhere, huge la- lagoon. Um and uh, so if you go to Mauritius, try and uh, get a sneaky flight over to Rodrigue too. Um, and the other great thing about Mauritius and Rodrigue is a le- never been shark attacks. Oh, wow. Nice. Right. The lagoon seems genuinely closed. I and mean, when you're Australian and keen on the beach, you're always sceptical. Yeah. Mm. Um, but I think it's true because next door is Réunion, which is French still, and they've had lots of shark attacks. Allegedly, it's on this great white shark. Uh, Great White Shark Highway from South oh. Africa to Australia. But they oh, wow. can't get into the lagoon. Can't get into the lagoon in the Mauritius, Great allegedly. Time. No, look, look, honestly, <laughs> I've looked it up. I did, a, a I did a deep dive, no pun intended, and, um, yeah, they've never had a recorded shark attack in Mauritius, which is pretty extraordinary. There's obviously yeah. enough fish around that they don't need to come into the lagoon. Yes, yeah. yes. And enough so. surfers, over in, surfers over in Reunion. Yeah, is that mm-hmm. right? <laughs> We've got friends who actually oh. lived in Reunion and their teenage son, he's about 17 or yeah. 18, he's a near professional surfer and, yeah, his mum said that every time he goes out to surf, you know, she sort of yeah. has a mild heart attack because of the shark attacks yeah. off Reunion. So it's, it sounds like it's become a real problem over there lately as well. Yeah, like I say, it's on the, it's on the Great White Superhighway. Yeah. So, yeah. Mm. so anyway, um, wow, you made me go nostalgic of a trip, <laughs> a trip this year. And later I might talk about another plant that came up in Mauritius, which is the uh, one of the um, konjacs. But hold that. Ooh. Let someone else have a chance to right. talk about what they're up to. Okay. Yeah. I wanted to talk to Sandra a little yep. more about where you just mentioned risk-taking. Yes. Yes. Uh, because is this, in, is this to do with playgrounds and children? Correct. Not mm. be, well, us wrapping bubble wrap. 
Oh, yeah. Popping them in bubble wrap now. Yep. So, um, yeah, so some of the research that Dimity with her new book has done is related to that, hence why she's talking with Tim Gill. But Tim Gill is, I believe, a specialist in this area as well. And I know him through a document that he wrote, which was um, about risk aversion and exactly what you've just said, the, the bubble wrapping of children. Um, there's a misconception that the way playgrounds are made these days with soft fall and lots of mulch and all that sort of stuff, that that makes playgrounds safer. Okay. In fact, it's causing almost more injuries than... Are they suggesting we concrete underneath playgrounds? Not, <laughs> not concrete. It's just actually... Um, I guess some of the safety precautions or regulations around playgrounds uh, and just, the, you know, the fact that certain equipment won't be used because it's too risky, that sort of thing. It's actually just looking at, um, yeah, some of the, the later research and both from Dimity's research and some other stuff that I was listening to the other day, they're talking about that now, especially with preschool age, the fact that uh, kids are not getting outdoors and they're not being allowed to do anything unsupervised uh, is actually really impacting their mobility. So you've got kids that are at kindergartens who are starting to have more accidents. They're falling over more because their sense of balance has been affected by the right. fact that they're spending more time on screens and indoors and sedentary. Wow. So I think there's a whole lot of um, more, I guess, yeah, GP sort of almost physical related symptoms that are starting to come out now that I hadn't heard about. Uh, Tim Gill was talking in his research and that would already be, you know, five, ten years old. He was talking about just this risk aversion means that children don't judge risk in a realistic way anymore and because there's soft fall there or there's mulch and things like that, they're, they're not actually judging things correctly and so they are actually falling more because they're not, they don't have it's that like, life oh, experience I'll, I'll of... land on the soft stuff. Correct. And therefore they're actually then falling and, and breaking limbs and so there's been no, from what I've seen, and I'm, I'm no expert, but there's been no evidence of, you know, once we started safeguarding our playgrounds that there's been less injuries, in fact, if not the other way. Uh, and like I said, now there's actually neurological developmental problems starting to happen. And of course, these playgrounds haven't been around long enough that we know what are the effects on these people when they're adults. Mm. Um, what? No, just very quickly on that. I, I was just talking to someone the other day on this very issue. I didn't realise yep. this was all happening. Because about 10 years ago, I was at a, con a parks conference in New York, very, very lucky, and it was in Brooklyn, and there was this new playground had been built, and it was slightly more risky. Yep. And our tour guide was saying that the Germans had done research, mm -hmm. and this is from insurance companies, so actuaries, like yep. statisticians, saying we now believe that the safe playgrounds are leading to more adult injuries and therefore more pay payouts. So that was 10 years ago. I heard that, that, that German research was showing when... And so the insurance companies themselves were saying, saying take hmm. more make risk. them more dangerous, quote, unquote, I'm doing you know air quotes, hmm. um, yeah. make them more dangerous because the long-term consequences are worse. Yeah. And, and I, I will say... My youngest brother, Nick, was reflecting, though, the other day that at the monkey bars at Lloyd Street Primary School in East Mob, for those who went there, <laughs> he, in the mid, mid to late 70s, I can't remember when it was, he fell off the monkey bars and cracked his head on the exposed concrete footing and was concussed and was in Cabrini Hospital for a day. So I guess there's oh. – or a night. So there's – Look, those, yeah, you know, I think like, realistically <clears throat> those regulations are not going to go. There's yeah. not, you know, if, if within a certain boundary, um, mm. because obviously in our work with Andrew Proctor Landscapes, we do 
playgrounds and yeah. those concrete edges are going to be far enough away yeah, that sure, that's, that's not going to go anywhere. It's yeah. looking at heights um, and just, I guess, yeah, that reasonable risk mm. um, and learning about risk. So what we've done is we've, we've cotton wooled it so much wow. that we're now, we're t- we've taken a learning experience away from kids and as I said what has literally like within the last month that I've been reading I haven't heard this before Mm. is the neurological developmental side effects that they're having where children you know they're bumping into each other they're falling over at kindergartens because they don't they're not used to walking on uneven ground anymore or they're used to being in a stroller or they're used to being carried around it's yeah which, you know, they're all things that are lovely in their own way, but it's, like I said, it's taking away a learning experience that's actually fundamental Absolutely. for mm. child and human development. So they don't know the consequences of what does this mean for adults, like at these children. They're starting to look at more long-term research now. But, uh, yeah, it's just it's it's that more risk-taking. What have happened to adventure playgrounds? Did they, they must have – I mean, the ones that were really – you know, that there was a brief period, I think, in the mid-'60s maybe through to – There was post, post-war. Had, post-war, they, right. they, they kind of came out of that. So basically Second World War had a development <clears> – excuse me – where um, – a lot of the like there were no playgrounds in the bombed cities, and so they, you know, D- Denmark and places like that, essentially made rubbish, rubble playgrounds. Yeah. From that came the adventure playgrounds, from what I understand. They're, they are starting to make a, a comeback because you look at places like Royal Park and and places like that, and mm. the fact that that and you know the children's play uh, the Ian Potter children's playground at the Royal Botanic Gardens, those places because they're such a big hit, they are starting to come back. But um, but I think the other thing that I've sort of heard both anecdotally and seen in the research, and we had a um, a woman on an excursion with us from Burnley say her daughter is raising kids in Germany and she said the whole European lens is is very different and I've heard since then as well that the Australian lens is overprotective like we we really are one of the most extreme sort of overprotective countries for playgrounds at the moment in saying that the positive is it is starting to turn um, mm, we're doing good. a lot more nature play Yep. places there's there's quite a few sort of landscape companies that are specializing in that and mm. it, it, there is more coming with nature play yep. and also bush kindergartens and and things like that so th- there is there is growth in that area which makes me hopeful but we i think we've still got a long way to go because people yeah. are just as we've yeah just I, seen I, I remember this shift fear. from the the sort of fun pine log uh, playgrounds when I was little to mm-hmm. the the plastic Maccas ones. I yep. remember that yep. shift like when I was sort of coming out of yep. or growing out of playgrounds. Yep. And then, yeah, maybe in the last 10 years, the Nature Play one at Royal Park right next to the, the hospitals yep. is a fantastic Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. Oh, my boys love it's that one. It's the best, me yep. too. Yeah. My boys also adore it. But I was just thinking about what you're saying about the softball underneath it. It's there is It's all mulched. Underneath, yeah. and so you do you need do that because, as you said, Chris, there is you know you don't want somebody falling off and cracking their head on concrete. No, of course, no. Like, and that, and that's I guess the misconception is that that's what people then automatically think of. Oh, you're going to damage my child, and it's yeah. like no, we're going to allow your child to build 
the usual or past usual skills of their mm. body awareness and all the signs that you know that we often don't even think about like how how you're aware of your body and you know how far is your arm away from your core right now how yep. how big is that step they don't they're losing that judgment of their own physical capabilities mm. and so um yeah it's actually like it's quite concerning what i've recently you read know, the thing that probably scares me the most is seeing these childcare centers and kindergartens mm-hmm. that are you know they're built on a suburban block mm-hmm. but yet the playground is on the second story yeah. and it's flat and yep. it's plastic grass yep. and there's a little sand pit mm-hmm. and so like there's a perfectly flat even surface there's nothing for the kids to dig in yep there's no real yeah. plants or no real trees. No physical change or no, diversity. Yeah. Exactly. And true. that, you know, as a mum of two boys, nine and 11, who my nine-year-old in particular spends half his life up a tree. Yep. If you can't find him, go yeah, and look good. in a tree. And well, he's there, up there. there was unfortunately really scary data about talking that I think one in six kids has climbed a tree in their life yeah, now in well, Australia, yes. which you just go, what? But the other thing that it just leads into from what you're saying as well is that there's links now to the length of because a lot of I think American and also some Australian schools are starting to shorten their playtimes because um, oh no we need you know we need to get the curriculum done and oh, what they found what I've heard both through Dimity's book and also a podcast specialising on that topic was that uh, when I think it's something like 40 minutes to an hour is mm-hmm. what's necessary for students to actually go through the whole process of the, you know, the cortisol and the, all of that sort of stuff. So if you give them only a 15, 20 minute break, they'll come back into the classroom, be completely hyped up because they haven't been able to go through the whole cycle of what their body is going through yep. to go from concentration to relaxed phase to, okay, I'm ready to concentrate again. Yep. And so, you know, teachers are like, oh, they're coming back and they're just restless and won't listen. And it's like, yes, because you need to give them a longer break. Yep. It was an interesting one. I'll look it up um, while you guys talk about the next thing because um, I think it's the tree nook. Oh, oh sorry, timber nook. That's, I'll just say that. If anyone's interested, look up timbernook.com. It's a um, a firm that is looking at bringing these kinds of qualities and they've done the whole connection between what it is, how long's the break, what's the developmental benefits that's coming out of that. Cool. Okay. The text message come through from um, one of our regular listeners, Peter in Notting Hill. He went to Lloyd Street School from 78 to 86. And yes, I had an incident on the monkey bars as the <laughs> of other kids. Thankfully, nothing serious. Um he said they got removed, though, and were replaced by a large timber playground surrounded by pine bark. Um, by oh, and the school had its hundredth and it has its hundredth anniversary next week. Oh, so oh, wow. I've been wondering about that because yeah. when I was there, that's how old I am. We put in a time <laughs> capsule in 1973. Yeah, wow. so I'll have to ring them and see if they even know this thing exists somewhere <laughs> buried. Yeah. yeah should yeah did wow. you, do you did you just dig a hole and chuck it well I, only a select, <laughs> only a select number of, only a select number of students got to put something in wow. but i know it happened i mean i was very young but i do remember yeah i don't know where they stuck it so i'll i'll contact them after the show yeah great yeah. thank awesome. you for that peter what a treat <laughs> <laughs> that's fun uh, 
Sorry, go. Oh, I was just going to say super quickly, another memory of Lloyd's Tree. <laughs> there used to be a brachykite in Paponius, a Currajong, just in terms yeah. of the, the old school childhood experiences. Yeah. And what happened was there was this massive phase where everyone started excavating the roots around this big tree to get Christmas beetles. And the trade was extraordinary. Everyone would get matchboxes. And wow. you would, there was just this, it was an industry. It looked like some sort of mining ex- excavation. Anyway, that's a, and that tree's gone, I've checked. Um, okay. But anyway, yeah. We used to, well, yeah, sort of mine around or excavate around the, we had a, a horseshoe of radiata pines in my primary school. And we used to always try to like dig and excavate underneath the roots there. And I can remember it to this day, it was this hardened clay it was so hard like these trees i mean pinus radiata will grow anywhere yeah it wasn't affecting the trees at all but mm. it was just this horrendous soil yep. not there yeah but what a, but what a valuable experience Absolutely. exactly yeah, we yeah. Had, i remember doing that in, um, for marble runs um you know excavating and yeah. you know using marbles and running marbles over and through and under yeah, wow. yeah. yeah. It's like you don't need a playground <laughs> no exactly <laughs> a bit of dirt. mind you though i i was talking to a friend again about um you know my kids school versus where he her kids go to school and she was saying that her kids at their school they're not allowed to dig holes oh help me run well, I was going and i, I was, was just like sorry a- what she said, oh, no, they're oh. not allowed to dig holes at school because I was telling her how my kids were digging holes and making some sort of moat or something. And she said, oh, my kids are not allowed to dig. Well, you'll love this story. Like, we've, we've, had, we've been doing some work with the Steiner School and when Andrea and I went on site and visit, um, we got told about the hole that was being dug. <laughs> there was a child standing in oh it. Oh, my goodness. Wow. It was above their head and they were digging it out and handing the soil to the person above. They'd had, they had a plank leading in. To it, I kid you not. It was about one and a half to two meters deep. Oh it had take it had taken them two weeks to do it. It was a concerted effort between grade three and four. It was amazing. It's the biggest hole I've ever seen, and they were encouraged to do it. And it was on a similar slope, but it was amazing. That's and it's so yeah, those kids don't they don't you know they're not they have a little bit of um, play equipment, but most of it is actually climbing trees, digging yeah. holes. Yeah. Do you remember during during lock on that? Do you remember during the lockdowns when a lot of kids were creating um, mountain bike sort of ramps yes, and stuff? And I, it's yes. really interesting because I have you know friends who are open space professionals. And they were complaining about this, and I was and I was saying, yeah, I know, but you know, I mean, interrupting yeah. reveg and fair sure. enough. But on the other hand, I thought, wow, this is like back to the future for me. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember saying to someone, I literally saw a kid chucking a mono for those out there who even know if that is on their bike, <laughs> for the first time in like decades. Yeah. Right? Like I have not seen. No. You know, this kind of just go for it, kids yeah. outdoors. Well, yeah. And the learn, learn yeah. from it, yeah. you know, figure out what's going to happen. How high can you go? How how steep mm. does it need to be? Where do you feel safe? And yep. it's calculated risk. I think that's what it comes back yeah. to. At, at the back of my primary school, there was, again, um, another patch of, of pine trees that had been planted there and like, I don't know, the big... The big, well, to me, the big rough teenagers had built a BMX track. Exactly. Um, like un- unauthorised. And then it got that got all knocked over and then they shifted to another area on the other side of the primary school and sort of started rebuilding again. Very, very determined people. <laughs> but then the council got hold of it to try to like 
encourage mm. and make it a safe space. Oh. And they just hated it. They Then they just started destroying what the council was trying <laughs> to do. Yep. And they kept trying to make the council, tr- like, literally cut their jumps in half. And they just mm. kept building up, building up, and then it'd get cut in half and they'd build it up again. And they just, it just sort of ruined it. Yeah. Where, where's this? <laughs> very what, similar. In Croydon. Croydon, back okay. at Croydon yeah, Hills yeah. Primary School. Yeah. If there's anyone that went to Croydon Hills listening. Um, the, I'm pretty sure the... BMX track is still there, but it's it's. They used to be. I reckon. Actually, the only I've never had stitches before, and I should have had a stitch for this. Actually, I fell off my bike trying to go up one of them when I was younger, and I fell onto a tree branch, and I've got a scar right. on my arm mm. today from it. Probably should have got a stitch put in it. Um, and that was from trying to go up those things, mm. like. I hurt myself, but I'm still here. Yeah, and you learnt from <laughs> you it. Learned. You learnt. You knew that next time it's, yeah. it's not steep. It's like, I don't know if any of you have been to the amazing playground, the Rock Playground near the ABC in, in South Bank. Mm, Mike, no. I think it's Mike Hewson, but I may mm. have that name wrong as well. It's a it's an urban play space because what you were just talking about, Chloe, reminded me as well. Skaters often have mm. very, very similar problems. They don't want – they just want the normal – you know, landscape, yeah. and they'll use it how yeah. they want to use it. But um, but what they've done, their city of Melbourne has made a playground that is, it's amazing. So it looks like it's on blue stone paving, but once you p- pass the threshold, you realise that you're actually on spongy softfall that looks exactly like blue stone. Um, it's made out of um, huge basalt boulders, like enormous and they have uh it looks like steel pipes pulled out it looks like they've been tied together with a piece of rope like the whole thing and it's sitting on what looks like only tiny little wheeled trolleys does that give you a weird false sense of security well i have to say i went there knowing that this will have been done with complete you know, all safety regulations in place, mm. and they are. Like, it's all bolted down. That thing's not going anywhere. Mm. But the whole thing is made to look like you are taking risk beyond what you're doing. So, yeah, okay. So I think what it is okay. is it's kind it's almost encouraging that, but it's also just the way it's put together. It, it freaks parents out no end <laughs> bit at the start. And I have to say, even as a person who went to visit it knowing exactly what it is i was standing there going oh my lord how is how is this done because this just looks like risky as um but it's amazing and the kids love it so any parent and i i actually spoke to a couple of parents while i was there just explained look i'm a landscape architect i'm really interested in do you come here often what you know how did you find it and they all sort of said, yes, it, it looks like it's really intimidating to start with, but their kids love it. And one of them was a parent who I think she, his daughter would have been about two and he, you know, she was having a go at the bits that she could have a go at. And then, and I know I've spoken to other parents where it's that whole building of skills and risk-taking that you sort of, you do what you can um, and then you build on it. So if something's too high, like your ramp, you know, with the bike was, mm. then you don't do it again until you're ready mm. to do it again. Mm. Have another go. Um, but yeah, it's an amazing play space. The the most unsafe thing about that play space is the road right next to it, which is which, <laughs> is, which has been fenced off. Yeah. So it's um. But yeah, it's amazing. It's I'd encourage anyone to go. It's right near the ABC building. 
at the base of one of the sort of new tall skyscrapers at the back of South Bank. But it's a it's a fantastic play space. If if nothing else, then it pushes buttons and yeah, just has people question what can what can a play space That's look like. That's insane. We were just looking at some photos of it as you were talking, yeah. and uh, it yeah it looks real. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yep. yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, another text message, Peter from Notting Hill, Chris, um, he remembers there was a time capsule in 83 as well in a garden to honour teacher Mrs Venables. Oh, Mrs Venables. Oh, wow. Before. Remember um, Mrs Venables. He remembers the brachychitin tree pods um, <laughs> when they were opening and they often got put down people's backs as it was known <laughs> as the itchy powder tree. Yeah, yeah, we used to call, exactly. Wow. This is, we used to call it the itchy pod tree. Right. But itchy, yeah. When so, you mentioned that that species, mm. oh, that's a risky plant to put in a primary school because mm. they're... But you learnt. Yeah, like, Chris you, is still here. Peter's still here. I mean, I, when I was at TAFE, teachers were showing us like prickly prickly plants. And one, one teacher, I'll never forget, said to me, oh, that one's great to put near to put in a kinder or a primary school or something because it'll stop people from going off Correct. to a certain area. And yep. I was like, yeah, the prickly ones do do that. <laughs> but they don't use them and anymore. And you learn. <clears throat> he also dug around for Christmas beetles. Oh. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Great. Oh, All the memories this morning. Oh, that's um, if you have a, a childhood memory of falling off a playground, text in, let us know. <laughs> the number's 0488 809 855 if you want to message in this morning. And the phone line is 9419 0155. That didn't sound right. 9419 0155. That's it. This is the 3CR Gardening Show. I'm Chloe Foster. And in the studio with me this morning is Chris Williams, Chloe Thompson and Sandra Swartz. Now, Chloe, yes. it's Dahlia season it coming up. It is Dahlia up. season, yes. <laughs> They're often a question that we get, you know, how do I do this, how do I do that, how do I look after them, how do I cultivate them? Yep. What are your tips for it? Oh, they're not as hard as people think. They're, um, they're the hide- most hideous-looking little tuba, shriveled, bulby <laughs> oh, thing. It looks I like a little briefly bit of saw poo. your post. <laughs> it does. It looks like a little bit of dog poo. Um, but... 10 centimetres down, planted into free-draining soil. You can start planting them about now unless you get really severe heavy late frosts, which in that case you could always cover them up anyway. But pop them into the ground about 10 centimetres down, bit of blood and bone around it, bit of chook poo around it, um, and they'll go on their merry way. I tend to plant mine all in one bed and I use it as a picking bed. Um, Mm -hmm. I've posted it on my Instagram actually, um, so it's probably still on the stories. Um, I put it on irrigation because they do need a fair bit of water, mm-hmm. so, you know, going throughout the summer months. And I also um, use um, trellis mesh netting or garden netting, which I lay horizontally and support with stakes. And that just helps to keep the stems of the dahlias upright yeah, nice. and nice and strong and and good for picking in mm-hmm. the vases but do you raise the mesh as they grow i put two to three layers of oh, mesh yeah so i start yeah, it okay. I, I probably could raise it but you sort of some grow different speeds so yeah. i'd end up shredding the leaves mm-hmm. so i just add another layer so they're growing through the mesh in other yeah words, they yeah. grow through the it. mesh it's called trellis meshing or something it's, it's the stuff that's about like yeah, about 10 centimetres by 10 centimetres. Yeah. Yep. yeah, and it's just made of a nylon, so it lasts and lasts. You just take it down each year, okay. roll it up, and so then reuse just, it. Yeah, just reuse it again and again. Um, and, yeah, I absolutely adore them. I love them in all the sunset, sunset shades, um, but they're, they're just the most pretty flower. Yeah. Very photogenic. Okay. <laughs> 
are very photogenic. Yes. I've never grown one before, though. <gasps> I know. Oh. Don't worry, I get a few people addicted, so <laughs> they should come with a warning. <laughs> yeah. Chris, you brought in, was it a tree daily? I did. So I didn't realise that um, Chloe was going to talk about, I say dahlia still too, even though I have, you know, colleagues that love to say dahlia. Isn't no, it? Say, yeah, yeah, no which I is say prob- dahlia. I yeah. Uh, yeah, so this is a big stem of a tree dahlia, so uh, dahlia yeah. imperialis. So this is the largest in the world. So it's mm-hmm. from uh, Mexico, which I think they're all from anyway, mm. or Central America from the highlands. So this is the um, dahlia with the very long bamboo-like uh, canes, probably at least, probably up to four metres, probably more like three. Wow. And they have these big pink star flowers, not quite as complex as the cultivars, yep. but really beautiful plant. And you can grow it from cutting, so you don't actually need the uh, tuber. Mm. Um, so we ha- you can see here in the studio, it's, this is probably about a metre long, and it has big internodes. And so you just mm. you can either plonk one node in the ground, so vertically, or you can bury them horizontally, and they'll shoot from the nodes, oh. and um, you'll get these, this extraordinary um, display in about, or usually like clockwork, mid-May every mm. year. And yep. then you can cut those canes down and grow more. Yep. Are they so, large flowers compared to the usual? No, flowers? they're about they're about ten to fifteen centimeters. Mm-hmm. But it's a, it's a big inflorescence. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's okay. just like a big yep. one inflorescence is like a bunch of them, mm. and they're gorgeous. Wow. Nice. Yeah. Yep. No, they're one of my favorite plants. Yeah, mm. I really like them. We we've got a couple on on campus at Fairfield, and we were pruning them, um, or, or when we prune them because they're, they're hollow on the inside mm. and it blew students' minds. We pruned them open and it was full of water. Yeah. Like, they were cutting through it with the saw and they're like, oh, what's this water coming out? And we open it up and it was just like full of water on the inside. Exactly. When I cut this yesterday, yeah. it just oh, wow. flowed. Yeah. Yep. It was amazing. It's like a yeah. giant straw. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it actually is. Yeah. <laughs> They're stunning. Yeah. They're, they're, and they're so easy to grow as well. They'll just they'll just grow anywhere. Yeah. You know, years ago I heard, and it's, I, people will still say that you know, dahlia tubers are edible, and some people. Yeah. And um, but these ones, honestly, I, there's a, I found one reference in Mother Earth News from the early seventies that said they were edible, the tubers, and. But in the academic literature, there's one reference to the leaves being used as a famine food by one particular language tribal group. So I, I, I tried to cook it once and it was like like eating a pine log. So <laughs> oh, yeah. you, you heard it here. <laughs> Dahlia's nah. Don't it, do yeah. it. No, I've never bothered trying to eat the tubers either. I mean, yeah, theoretically they're edible, but nah. You'd have to be pretty hungry. Yeah, you would be. <laughs> yeah, be pretty fibrous or something. Yeah, no thanks. Yeah, no. Enjoy the flowers instead. Enjoy yes. the flowers. Um. Chloe, what are some other? What's another plant you brought in? I brought in two touchy feely leaves, which of course is really handy on radio, isn't it? <laughs> um, but I've brought in two Ooh. plants that I'm, I'm really loving at the moment for the texture of their leaves. So this really silvery one, which looks a little bit like lamb's ears, actually, mm. is Senecio candicans, mm. called mm. angel wings. Um, mm. Someone said to me the other day it had gone bananas on TikTok, and I was just like, uh huh. Well, there you go. Um, and I just bought this from the big green shed, but I don't know where else might, it might be available. I'm sure other nurseries. Um, so it's a Senecio, so quite often they're very succulent-like plants um, with those sort of fuzzy little yellow flowers that are not really – you don't really grow it for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but a really angelic, 
really showy looking plant. Um, so I've popped that into my garden. Um, it's apparently relatively frost tolerant, down to about minus four, according to some research. Um, but a really nice one for a great white, silvery grey. How tall does it get compared um, about, to lambsies? For about example? 40, 50 centimetres tall. So, so a little yeah, bit taller. A little bit taller and yeah. sort of more of a, not a, like a trunk, but more like a, a clump mm-hmm. rather than a spread like okay. lambsies. Yeah. yeah. It's so soft. Isn't Lambsies, it so the, soft? I think the hair on Lambsies is a little bit longer. This is quite velvety. It's so soft. It's like velvet. And wow. if I was going to, I've got it planted somewhere where I can walk past and touch it because it's just Great. so <laughs> touchy. So that's Senecio candy cans. Thank <laughs> it's you. going round and round the room here. <laughs> And then this other one a therapy is... therapy session, that leaf. It is, isn't it? It is. It's sens- sensory. Yeah. Um, and this other one I brought in is wow. Brachyglottis repanda purpurea. Wow. Can you just spell that last That's one, fantastic. please? I know. Isn't it crazy? You were prepared, Chloe. I, I was prepared because my spelling is notoriously horrendous. So I did actually cut and paste it into my notes. So brachy, so B-R-A-C-H-Y, and then glottis, G-L-O-T-T-I-S. Repanda, like it sounds, so re and then panda, and then purpurea. Um, so the purpurea comes from the fact that the top of the leaf is purple, so that's where that yeah, comes purple from. Purple veins. Yeah, purple, green, sort of dark green with mm. dark purple veins. Mm-hmm. And then the underside of the leaf is a very silvery, yeah. almost white. Yeah, it's almost um, like the It is, Senecchio. it's almost like the Senecchio, really. they almost the same colour on the underside of the leaf. Yep. Um, and I found this um, on a trip to the Roma Roma Ryan. Oh, Roy Rama. Roy Rama. Yeah, yeah. Properly, thank you. Um, I found that there when I went to visit, and I just fell in love with it. Um, So I've it's I planted it in a spot where it gets morning sun, um, and I just thought it was the most stunning plant. Dark, moody surface, stunning silvery underside. Mm -hmm. Gets quite tall, Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, wow. Really cool. Really, really cool. Really, really cool. Yeah. That gorgeous colour. Absolutely gorgeous Isn't colour. It I reckon it does look Very like different. a plant that needs a bit of protection. Yes, yeah. yeah. So I've popped it in an area where it's getting that morning sun. It's got the protection from some bamboos and a pandaria vine that's nearby. So I think it should be happy. It's definitely put on some new growth. So I'm happy about that as well. Great. So, yeah. Um, if you're definitely down the Lara Geelong sort of way, that nursery, mm. pronounce it again for me. Roy Rama. Roy Rama. Mm. Or Roy Rama. Roy Rama. I think you were right the first time. I, I, I say Roy Rama. A, a former student of mine who worked there actually for a while, he pointed out that it's it's named after a plateau that is crosses um, Venezuela and Brazil. Oh. Wow. So, I didn't realise that. Yeah. There's, okay. there's the obscure origin of it. Right. And I think it is Roy Rama, but someone can call in. Yeah, I'd never been in there before. That. As you're driving yep. down the freeway to yep. get to Geelong, yep. you'll see it. It's just this great big wall mm. of plants. It always looked closed. Like it doesn't yeah. look like it's open. You sort of mm. have to do a bit of a weird dog leg off the freeway yeah. to get That's into yeah. it. But wow, what a wonderland. It is a wonderland. We took students there at the end of last semester as a trip down there and we did Werribee Park as well. And I've known about it for years, and I don't live on that side of town. It, yeah, like it's a, it's a designation. It's the opposite it's a destination. to our side. It is, it's a destination. <laughs> and it was, it's just a bit of a magical wonderland. Yes. It's fantastic. He's got, there's so many succulents. So many. But then so many of other, we all the weird stuff. But it, Lyle, who, who owns it, there's also a whole heap of sort of more regular, like it's a fantastic nursery. Yeah. Mm. 
There's yep. just a huge range of plants, and then they've got the gardens. Yeah, so display gardens. Say that the extra gardens are yeah. fantastic as well. Really, is a destination worth worth visiting. Absolutely. Mm. Did yeah. you go to the gardens? Yeah, I went around the gardens yeah. as well. I actually went on it as part of an encouraging women in horticulture tour. Oh, nice. You went yeah. on that one. Yeah, trip. Cool. They went recently. It was a really yes. good, really good trip. Um, but it was just one of those tours where everyone, a lot of people had been like me, driven past it but never really been mm-hmm. in. Um, and on the trip was a plant broker. And you should have heard her walking around the nursery. She was oh, my goodness, I've been looking for that. Oh, wow, where's that been? Oh, look. And she was, wow, yeah, great. and people were coming out with, you know, trollies yeah. full. And, yes. Um, yes, very It's going to be hard to leave without something. It, it, it proves it, that the old school nursery, where which starts as someone's uh, personal passion, still can survive, yes. thankfully. Not, not just the yep. slightly more uniform species that we see in the big green temple. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, and Lyle's so knowledgeable. He was fabulous. Yeah. You know, you'd describe something and he'd go, yep, that's over here. Wow. Or, no, I don't have that one, but I've got this one, which mm. is like it. That's phenomenal. Yeah. yeah. I so admire people for that kind of knowledge. Yeah. I <laughs> don't think I'm going to get there in my lifetime, but that's hey, okay. you never know. <laughs> you never yeah. know. I... I take we take I make it a point of taking students to nurseries like Lyle and up to Gentiana to see Craig and Stephen's nursery as well to mm. go like if you are that obsessed with something yeah. or if you're really into something like, you can make a living out go of this forth. and and like you can do really well yeah mm. it, they're just great yes mm. no totally so, yeah yeah love it Absolutely. so yeah they're my two little new favorite plant babies at the moment <laughs> um, but yeah. I, I did also bring in some uh, little uh, wriggling friends. Does anyone know what these guys are? So- soldier fly. Yeah, so yeah. black soldier fly larvae. Yeah. Yeah. Close look, thank you. Have you heard of them, black soldier fly I've larvae? I've heard of them, but I wouldn't have been able to. Yeah, so they're one of nature's massive decomposers, um, and they're really, really incredible at eating organic waste including meat and dairy um, and they're sort of taking the world by storm a little bit in terms of their ability to decompose food and turn it into a compost. They're being used by commercial Mm. systems um, and they're looked at as something that could actually sort of really help us with Mm. our green waste and our food waste problems. Fantastic. Um, So I'm having a bit of a play at home at trying to create my own little farm. You can look up, I saw one on Gardening Australia about how, you know, you can make your own black soldier fly farm. Mm -hmm. Did those appear in your compost or have you bought them? So you can buy the larvae. Um, These are in their black stage, which is their final stage, which there's a few in there that are still pale. But the black stage is when they'll pupate down in the soil um, and then they'll turn into the fly Mm -hmm. and then they'll lay their eggs and the cycle begins again. And it happens pretty much in and around your compost area in and around your compost area or you can actually create a, a specific farm for it okay. so like I've a worm con- farm yeah i've actually mm-hmm. converted an old worm farm to give it right. a go um i'm still in the early t- stages of testing it out they are a tropical little guy um mm-hmm. so oh. they're not going to like melbourne's cold so much so mm-hmm. i am babysitting them a little bit um but in queensland and things if you look on youtube you see people with huge farms that get them going. And they're often used in third world countries, actually, to create animal food. They're great for chickens. My chickens adore <laughs> them. You yeah. should hear my chickens when I feed them. and they. So just... you feed them the stage that they're at now? Yeah, yep. so I'll feed them the black stage. So what's crazy about these little guys is at the moment I've got them inside in a tub in my laundry because I'm scared it's too cold outside still. <laughs> well, we're having some... Well, this de- week it is. Yeah, exactly. We've yeah. had some days of like three and for four sure. degrees overnight. Yeah. It's just ridiculous. Yeah. What's crazy about them is that so they're in their tub I'm feeding them, you know, kitchen scraps and they're eating it. 
And you can almost hear them eating it. They're moving and stuff. But what happens is they're little white little grubs that feed away. But then as they mature and they get ready to try and pupate, they turn this dark brown, almost Mm -hmm. black colour. And what they'll do is they'll rise to the surface in the tub. And then I've put little um, toilet paper rolls rolls on the surface. And innately, the little black grubs will go up a 30 to 40 degree slope and they'll innately go up out of the decomposing matter and then try and fall into the soil. Weird, isn't it? Whoa, yeah. Wow. So these little black guys, they innately go up this little slope that I've created for them and then they fall into a, well, I've got a bucket, they fall mm-hmm. into a bucket. And then in the morning, I grab that bucket and I go and feed it to my chickens. Okay. Wow. And so I'm literally, they're self-harvesting themselves. <laughs> yeah, wow. So they're not actually turning into flies in your case either? Not then. yet. Um, yep. I have actually taken a few of the, the little brown-black um, ones mm-hmm. and popped them into some pots that I've got sitting on a heat mat mm-hmm. <laughs> that I'm raising seeds on mm-hmm. in the hope that they will turn into the flies. Yeah, because um, I wondered what then eats them in terms of the bigger you know, ecological so cycle, fl- I guess. Yeah, so what? the flies only last for a few days. Okay. They have no mouth parts, so they don't, they're not like house oh, flies, okay. which are gross and sit on your food yeah. and stuff. So these guys, as flies, their role is literally to mate, lay eggs, and then oh, they're it's done. very similar to butterflies, isn't it? A that little bit, yeah. They have a short lifespan once they're a butterfly. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, And then, yeah, lay their eggs and the cycle begins all over again. Okay. But if people are interested in sort of trying an alternative composting method, I mean, I'm literally creating free chicken food. Mm. I've seen people put these um, black soldier fly farms in their chicken run. Mm -hmm. And because of the way that they self-harvest, and I'm doing that air quote thing, can you picture that you've got the little vent where they self-harvest yeah, and yeah, the chickens learn that if they hang out underneath that little vent, of course. <laughs> black gold okay. comes out of it. You need to do, like, you're a content creator extraordinaire. <laughs> can you do a video of this? I want to, yeah. I just have to have it all fine-tuned yeah. so I can get yep. it to work properly. But The only yeah. question I have then, are you, you would consistently need to be ordering new... Well, no. So theoretically, you wouldn't need to, if you get the whole cycle happening correctly. So yep. if I can get the flies... To and then contain them, basically. either contain them or just encourage them to lay their eggs back over the farm. Gotcha. Okay. And then the yep. eggs will then Perfect. fall back yep. into the farm yeah, great. and the whole cycle. So yeah, so, can so become, you can do that. You can do that. Perfect, yeah. yeah. In yeah, Melbourne, I can't picture it's going to happen year round because of sure. our cold winters. Yes. But um, but yeah, even like yeah, within possibly within a greenhouse or something yeah. like that where you it's can control warmer. that. Yeah. 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 Exactly. And so you're fact, containing in a broad way, but yes. You know, controlling it enough that it yep. is a year-round thing. Yeah, but they're so voracious. Like I put in a stalk of um, celery, just ripped off a stalk of celery from the garden. Grabbed a stalk of celery. I just bashed it with a, a mallet to mm-hmm. soften it a bit, and I put that into their tray. Within two days, I'm struggling to find the stalk of celery. Wow, wow. Okay. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. You know. Um, that's really cool. Yeah, that's great for compost. Yeah. Exactly, and they'll do meat and dairy as well. They won't eat bones. So it's the full like uh, fo- you know fogo bins yeah. type thing now. <laughs> so cool. So anyway, so, stay tuned. <laughs> yeah. So if I'm thinking about like cold compost systems and hot compost systems, would, mm-hmm. would they would they struggle in a hot compost system that got up to like 60, 70 yeah, degrees? Yeah, they probably would. But I've certainly seen them in my black you know, my little Dalek compost bins, my yeah. cold compost bins. So that's great. If you can't do the hot composting, which it is mm-hmm. a bit of a – it's sort of another job. Mm-hmm. Yep. yep. Um, I don't have the space for a, a multi-bay compost either. bin system. Yeah. yeah. But you'd be able to use these to 
you know, cold composting can take longer. Yep. So these mm. would help. Yeah. Like or, urban, you know, urban composting. Exactly. Or, you know, something the size of a worm farm. Mm. So, mm. as I said, I'm still in the trial and error yeah. stage yet, but if I can get it to work, um, yeah, keep an eye on your findings. Where did you buy the larvae from? So, I actually bought the larvae. We also have a bearded dragon. Um, so, <laughs> okay. I, I got into all of this because I was a little bit sick of buying food for this bearded dragon, which seems to cost a small fortune, and he adores the larvae. Um, so, I thought, well, hang on, if I can grow our own. Um, and the great thing about these is unlike crickets or woody roaches, these don't jump Mm-hmm. Or fly around. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that's why I sort of got into it. But I bought these from a place called Reptile Realm, which is literally a reptile food supply, and they mm-hmm. sell live insects. But I also know Bardi, B A R D E E, often stocks and sells the live larvae as well. So, yeah. It's cool. Thanks, Chloe. No, that's okay. Uh, you are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. I'm Chloe Foster and I have Chris Williams, Chloe Thompson and Sandra Swartz in the studio with me this morning. If you want to join us, the number is 94190155 and the text line is 0488 809 We will post photos of our plants and larvae. <laughs> Um, after today's show on our Facebook and Instagram channels. If you want to jump onto those and check out what we've been talking about, uh, our handle or our username is 3CR Gardening Show on both of those. For any listeners that want to send in questions, I know there's lots of podcasters out there. Hello to you guys. Uh, and Or you can't, or you want to send us a photo, the email address is 3cr.gardening at gmail.com because we can't accept images via the text line here. Um, Chris. No, Chris, you're going to have to hold on. We've got a phone call. Sure. <laughs> We've got a phone call. No problem. That was perfect timing, actually. Um, I will say a very good morning to Lucille from the Melbourne Growing Friends. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Chloe. You've called in an absolutely perfect timing. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's good. Um, And now how is the Melbourne Friends um, getting ready for the plant sale next week? Well, we've all been very busy. We've all been busy propagating and potting up and looking after our plants so that they look the best for next weekend. Beautiful. Now, I will say to listeners, um, Lucille is from the Royal Botanic Gardens, Victoria, Melbourne Friends Group, um, and their plant sale I mentioned earlier is on next weekend. Um, While we've got Lucille on the line, listeners, if you've got any questions for her or you want to ask about a particular species or genus that they might have in stock, just send us a text message um, and I'll try to read it out while um, I've got Lucille on the line. So the number's 0488 809 855. Lucille, what are some special plants that you guys are going to have for sale next weekend? Well, we've got a range of plants, of course. We've got Trees, shrubs, including camellias. Uh, we have perennials, Australian native plants, bulbs, rhizomes, and iris, including irises, and succulents, herbs, and bromeliads, uh, as well as shade-loving ones and sun-loving ones. So there'll be particular things for each group. Uh, I don't know. Everything was looking pretty good uh, on Friday. We were busy sort of boxing them up in preparation for setting the sale up next for next weekend. Uh, 
So I don't know whether I could particularly point out something because everything was looking really good. <laughs> so you... it depends what people are particularly after, I guess, or what they're get coming in to find, something special to fill a, a particular hole, perhaps, in their gardens. I have been keeping my eye on your plant list. Have you got a plant list um, that's out yet or coming out this week on your website or anything? Yes, the, the catalogue is now out on our website uh, and I can give you that address. Uh, that is www.rbgfriendsmelbourne.com all one word, so it's a bit of a mouthful, dot org. So that's rbgfriendsmelbourne dot org. Okay. And people can go to that and download your catalogue list. They can indeed. And that means they can make up their list and then be ready at the gate at 10 o'clock before it opens. (laughs) That usually, I bet that happens quite often. Yes, yes it does. We often get a good crowd there waiting to be let in at 10. Well it's such a treat with and I know it happens at the Cranbourne sales as well is that you know people love these botanic gardens and the growing friends you know take their material you know it's the best way to get a little botanic gardens in your own garden. It certainly is yes most of our material does come from the botanic gardens so yes it is definitely one way of doing that Mm. or the best way of doing that. I've been keeping my eye on a particular plant there and, and your your catalogue lists as well. Mm-hmm. Um, we're just having a look at the list at the moment. Um, there's a Caparis arborea that the caper white butterflies are always hanging out on at the Melbourne Gardens, and I just love it. <laughs> They're not super easy to find, but maybe one day you'll have it on your list. Right. So now what was that particular plant? <laughs> <laughs> make, make a note of it for you and make sure perhaps we have it next time if it's not on the list this time. I would be so thankful if you did that. Um, Caparis arborea. Okay. Yeah, write it down. Okay, yes, I've made a note of that. Thank you uh, very much. There's so, we're looking at the list now. There's a lot of plants on here. Oh, yes. The nursery is absolutely chockers at the moment. And you guys sell out, you guys pretty much sell out every single plant sale you have, don't you? Well, yes, on the whole, we do get pretty close to selling out. I think last time there wasn't a great deal to, to take back to the nursery, which for which we're always grateful. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that means we have to work very hard to uh, fill the nursery up again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of work to do. I'm just looking at the list now. So there's some aloes, lots of begonias. Yes. So many. Do I see citrus, clivias, crassulas? Yes. Lots of plants. Lots of salvias uh, and a variety of, of uh, perennials. And the, the Australian natives group always have something interesting in there often some unusual and threatened plants available mm-hmm. so uh, yes you you'd be hard pushed not to find something really good and interesting yeah there's 48 pages there lucille well oh. done <laughs> <laughs> well we do our best we work hard yeah, that's like, amazing absolutely and all the funds go to projects supporting the botanic gardens is that right mm-hmm. that is correct Beautiful. Uh, now, where is the plant sale being held again? The plant sale is being held inside the gardens. 
inside E-Gate, or what they're now calling the Southern Gate. So, yes, that's a new one on me. All the gate names have recently been changed. Oh, have they? Oh, no. They will Mm. start to make more sense because they're (laughs) actually named after, you know, what they're close to. I was going to say, I tend to reference it, the Herbarium Gate, the Cafe Gate. It'll be almost that sort of thing. Okay. Just getting used to what it's that transition zone that that makes them a bit, but yeah, it'll come. So we're inside the Southern Gate. So we're on the south side of the, the Botanic Gardens. Yep. Uh, is that is near um, the herbarium mm, in a way? Like, like F Gate's well, right next. No, F Gate's <coughs> right next to the herbarium, but then it's the next one round, so it's a That's little bit right. further. Yes, yeah. it is. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so we're between the the um, the herbarium and uh, oh, what's the name of that road? No, oh, it's gone out of my mind There's now. But anyway, Bird yes. Bird something Drive. Birdwood Avenue. Birdwood no, no, Avenue. We're on Birdwood Avenue. Yeah, that's yes. what you're on. Yep, so the Birdwood Avenue side and just... Be Anderson? That's, is it Anderson, Anderson Street, Lucille? That's Anderson the other Street, street? that's right. But yep. Between the Herbarium and Anderson Street. Yep. 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 Beautiful up the south here, at the, up that end. All right, Lucille, well, I really wish you guys absolute fun and games and I hope you get a massive crowd next weekend with the huge plant range that you've got. <laughs> I'll see you there, Lucille. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm well, going to I'm pop in after the talk. <laughs> I look forward to seeing you and, and any of your listeners who, who are coming along. That would be great. Yeah. And let's hope the weather is kind to us too. Indeed. And, and thank you very much. No worries. All the best and um, we'll talk much. to you soon. Alrighty. Bye. Bye. <clears throat> All right. This is the 3CR Gardening Show and we just spoke to Lucille from the Melbourne Botanic Gardens Friends Group. Their plant sale is on next weekend. I have Chris Williams, Chloe Thompson and Sandra Swartz in the studio with me this morning. If you want to give us a call, ask a question or have a chat, the number's 94190155 and the text line is 0488 809 855. Uh, Chris, question for you. Yep. What's growing in the Burnley Field Station at the moment or where are you at with all that? Um. Thanks, Chloe. Yes, so uh, I I do grow lots of uh, interesting things down there as part of my novel crops project. Yeah. Um, now, is that with one of the subjects that te- yeah, you I t- teach I t- or through I, a few subjects that that's... Yeah, no, I link it. I link it mostly to my subject that's called food production for urban landscapes that Chloe next to me says she did <laughs> a long time ago. Um, yeah, just, just to, to have that live, literally living demonstration garden so students who mostly are growing, you know, uh, standard vegetables... Uh, can also see some other other material that that can grow, but also to to see it in a um, from an aesthetic point of view as well when plants are all clumped together, um, and so yeah, everything's coming back to life. So we had a mild winter, um, and I mean, I, I guess you could call it a food forest, but I hesitate to use that term. Perhaps a perhaps a garden with different life forms in it. That's the, <laughs> the ecologist in me coming out. Um, but uh, yeah, so one of the plants that uh, has been uh, of great interest has been sugarcane in the last few years so I've, I've brought some in yeah, um, growing sugarcane in Melbourne yeah so I did see some growing in a, a school a primary school garden at Fairfield and I thought oh that's interesting and then uh, I'd been donating some of my my plants like cran- cranberry hibiscus yam sweet potatoes and so on to the botanic gardens to the um, little the kitchen garden there next to the children's garden and so as part of that process of that donation, I was given a few things in return, and that included sugarcane. Mm. 
So I grew it in a polytunnel. It did really well, unsurprisingly. And then I put it down in the field station that does get, um, you know, between one to four frost every year, depending on the season. And it absolutely went bonkers. And then winter came and it, yeah, it didn't it stop growing, but it didn't suffer, even though there were frosts. And I thought, this is unusual. And then I questioned whether it would be sweet, because mm. I'd heard that uh, sugar cane growing at the Flemington <laughs> Cultivating Community Garden, it was a false report. Um, <laughs> fake news, if you will, <laughs> about because but but what it comes down to is you've got to you've got to harvest it as you would in a commercial sugar, or you know in a, in a subtropical area end of autumn mm-hmm. when the sugars build up Very before right. and so it's incredibly sweet. Um, mm. And then as I was saying to you before the show we went on air that by chance a really old friend of mine's parents were cane farmers in northern New South Wales, so I went to see the, the couple of cane farms. This is early this year. And uh, one retired farmer and a, and a current farmer were both sort of, you know, kind of sceptical and laughing at me about growing it in Melbourne, mm. remembering that anyone north of Sydney thinks that Melbourne's climate is like Siberia, right? Yeah. right? So, so put that. And then all of a sudden they they said, you know, why not? Because they said, we're, we're at the limit, we're at the southern limit of commercial cane farming here in the, um, I'm going to say the Grafton Valley, if that's even what it's called, but, you know, Clarence River Valley, I think it is. And they were saying, yeah, we get frosts and... Over the decades, we've had frost-tolerant varieties develop for us, and I was given some. So now, not the one I brought in now, but um, I now have an officially frost-tolerant variety. It's got a name, something like C74A, like something very unimaginative. Mm, yeah, very marketable. <laughs> um, so, yes, the short story is that a lot of – it's like bamboos. They're, some of them are genuinely tropical but can grow down to minus 5 or even minus 10. So sometimes the, the tolerances plants have don't necessarily reflect – their ecological habitat origins so mm. but anyway it grows it grows really well it forms a huge clump so aesthetically very pleasing if mm. you want a big tall grass and then if you do want to um uh, cut the cane chop it up a bit and chew on it um it, it's extraordinary and as these farmers mm. said to me earlier in the year and they said wow if you if you price out sugar cane that's used for uh crushed juice at the you know Preston Market for example mm. or it comes out to something ridiculous like 4,000 a kilo so <laughs> so I mean folks this is I'm telling you I mean no no um, but yeah no just just again one of these uh, it's always good to test these things it's mm-hmm. just to see um, you know how, how would people plant it you, you oh yes great, great yeah you buy, no yes you can and I was taught all these names like billets and there's a whole it's the history of sugarcane, I won't go down that rabbit hole as tempted as I am. Okay. But there's a lot of terminology for the way they do it. Right. Um, but, yeah, in, in more simple propagation layperson's terms, yes, you just um, cut it into sections and bury a couple of nodes and then it shoots from the nodes. So it's okay. actually extremely easy to grow. Yeah. Really easy to grow. Yeah. Um, and uh, and it's perennial, obviously, too. So it's going to be there for years. In fact, I would say the ones we're growing at the field station, they need thinning out already. Mm. And um, the best time to plant those I think sections now. now? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Yep. It doesn't hurt if you have a um, – if you can get them going in pots, uh, if you have a, access to a small greenhouse or polytunnel, yeah. Mm. But I'm pretty sure if you put them – they certainly are not going to rot. Then There's no um, danger there, Yeah. right? Mm. It's um, – So is the next step we're starting to grow tropical stuff. Can you try to grow a mango tree? Oh, so yes. <laughs> no, I've, so I've, I have – so years ago, a, a student of mine came, uh, was living in Footscray and had, had inherited out the front of her flat a mango tree. What? Yeah. Right. And she brought in this mango and we sort of ripe, beautiful mango and we mm. sort of 
put it on a plate and sort of did this kind of you know ritual of like what's this going to be like and it was delicious <laughs> really? yeah so I think it's it's very variety but I think there are hundreds if not thousands of cultivars globally I can meant, imagine right? the same with so many other fruits but yeah. we know the three that are sold in the supermarket yeah right yeah. this is the issue so um, I've just um, germinated a few last year so I'm about to pot them up so that's how did on you germ- how did you germinate oh I just, just took the Seed, yeah. You know, the, I'm going to say pip. I'm trying to think of it because mm. it's, it's an unusual seed, right? Stone. It's huge yeah, it's stone. Yeah, yep. I had done it before, but lost them. Um, and um, yeah, so you have got this unusual. It's got an unusual juvenile foliage, I guess. Um, so yeah, pretty easy. Again, in, I, I'm not sure. So I wasn't very systematic when I did it. Yep. I just had. A, I have a very hot polytunnel. Okay. Very so short. It was in your polytunnel. It was to germinate. germinate. Yeah, although okay. previously I'd done it. Um, just you know, under sort of backyard veranda kind of situation. So, okay. I think they germinate quite easily. Yeah. In summer, um, so I think, with or without climate change, if if you will, the, I think certain types of mangoes are possible in Melbourne in a very sheltered spot. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Chloe, you should try one in your little greenhouse. Oh, what fun! Yeah, I like putting yeah unusual things in there. That's a good chop. Yeah. Mm. I, Often think with the Burnley, with the field station that you've got there, are yep. they those plots on the same? I'm thinking soil health. Oh yeah. Are those plots on the same spot or plot that you've been doing this sort of trials at Burnley for over a hundred years? Yeah. So the that's a great question because the you're talking about the student veggie plots now. Yeah. 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 So um, yeah, at the in the field station, there's been cultivation and ploughing down there for well over. <coughs> excuse me. I suppose about 130 years it is now, and it's a genuine uh, silty loam. Um, oh, how nice! Yeah, <laughs> so it is, but it's it's very forgiving. You know that everything that you read and study will tell you that um, you, you're going to get a loss of productivity over yeah. time. But I think what's happened is that um, I mean, there, in some sections there are plough pans, meaning that the practice of ploughing has created a hard surface you know, about 400 mil down in some, not everywhere. But even in those areas, the reason that it retains its productivity is because it's not a commercial farm. Mm -hmm. So you get this extraordinary weed growth. That gets ploughed back in. A lot of the crops get ploughed back in, right? So over time, in other words, there's just been this constant addition of organic matter. And I think that's... um, that's that's explaining it, right? I'm really glad to hear that you said that there's weed growth because our veggie patches at our Fairfield campus, <laughs> you come back after summer and it's just like the weeds are as tall as me. <laughs> it's, yeah. Um, because of there's so much nutrient, synthetic mm. and organic that goes into the yeah. plots each semester. But the Yeah, that's right. And, I mean, um, the proof, the proof is in the pudding in the sense that the crops are usually extraordinary. The broccoli um, heads there, I don't know, if we, were they gigantic? They were you, huge, yeah. yeah. I remember getting incredible harvests some, I think it was about 12 years ago that I was in your class, Chris. Yeah. And, yeah, I remember getting incredible harvests. The first time I ate New Zealand yams was uh-huh. from, yes. or ochre was from those patches. Yep. Yeah. The lemony kind of potato-y type oh. tubers. Um, but yeah, they were, they were ridiculous. The amount of stuff that you got out, we all had our little designated plot and we virtually all plant the same, planted the same thing. There was a little bit of uh, disparate differentiation. Yeah, that's, in, I've uh, cracked down on that. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's all very uniform now. It's all very uniform. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Um, but yeah, great class. 
Well done. Oh, thank you. <laughs> well, you know, it's a legacy thing. I've inherited it and then tweaked it to be something, you know, a bit different. But, yeah, it, it's fantastic to um, to run a program where students are growing food and you can see photos of students doing something similar right back to the 1890s. Mm. Yeah. It, it, yeah, yeah. You, feel, you feel like you've got this sort of stewardship responsibility. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah, I th- and I think teachers like yourself and I'm, I can't even think of some of the other lecturers' names really sparked my interest in that, well, it's not meant to grow here but let's just give it a shot and see what happens or this isn't a typical food crop, let's give it a shot and see what happens. Well, yes, and then, then there's that extra link to and that this is another area I'm really interested in which is, well, we are this diverse multicultural city. People come from all over yep. the world. Yep. What are the things they'd like to grow? Yes. Have they just assumed that you can't, Yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, and this year I'm very excited because I'm, I'm growing cassava and um, African yams for the United African Farm. Um, I'm going to say a Cranbourne or is it Pakenham, but I've been yeah, there, well, yeah. you know, because, you know, what they took, Twitch Ajak and his crew down there are trying to grow all sorts of crops for the wider African community, which itself is very diverse mm. and he doesn't come from a yam eating background. We're getting into yam content. <laughs> so dias- Dioscoria. Yeah, yeah, no, so very br- yeah, that's right, briefly. Um, but people from West Africa, Nigeria and Cameroon and Ghana, you know, it's called the yam belt and they're super into these giant tubers. So, yeah, Twitch was quite excited that I got this strange interest in this <laughs> in this group of species so that um yeah so to your point chloe we, we, we can grow things that um are going to have you know going to be very special to mm. certain groups yeah yeah, yeah for yeah. sure mm. so good we'll get to that um, yeah sure but we'll come back to it because i want to um i've got some more questions for you uh but we do have a listener on the line um good morning to meryl johnson hello <laughs> hello chloe and all the listeners everyone on the panel Hi, how meryl. you going Hi. meryl we're we're very well, thank you. Enjoying the garden with a, a good six inches of rain under its belt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How good. That's heaps of but, rain. <laughs> but, Chloe, I'm ringing in with some breaking news. Um, it's good news and sort of bad news, but not. We have traditionally opened our garden over many years in conjunction with the Gardevalia Festival, which is an open gardens festival with many gardens in West Gippsland that opened at this time of the year. And we always love to participate in Gardevalia because we raise a lot of money for our local charities via the Gardevalia openings. And we believe that the Gardevalia Festival of Open Gardens had folded because of the ravages of COVID when it wasn't able to operate for a number of years. But good old gardeners of West Gippsland, they've formed a new committee and the latest news is that the Gardevalia Festival is now back on in April as an autumn opening to give the new committee a chance to get everything up and running again. So we have postponed our open days to remain in line with Gardevalia in April next year. But if anyone, well, we're, we're still welcoming many clubs and bus groups who've already booked in for this spring. And so we're welcoming clubs and groups or anyone 
by appointment because we don't want to disappoint people yeah. this spring. And I have to say, the garden is looking very gorgeous. Now, you but... should be able to show it off then. <laughs> <laughs> but we didn't want people just to be turning up and expecting, you know, as, as has been previously advised, yeah. but expecting all the big displays and, you know, the, the normal opening because that's now been postponed until April but if anyone would like to give me a ring and make an appointment you are very welcome indeed and there's no entry charge Bless you Meryl, you are so generous Uh, did you want to give out your number on air or will we leave that number with Burn? Oh no, that's fine, I can give out the number online and and people can also look on our website on the Seedscape website and the telephone number is there as well Okay So the phone number for appointments to visit the garden in spring is 0356284202 or they can email us via the website or on cfp at nayook.com. .au and all of that's on the, the Seedscape website. Okay, all right. Thank you for calling up and letting us know that because I did speak about your open garden um, this morning. So if yes. listeners were awake then, uh, <laughs> it's been postponed until um, April. April next year. With And the good news is the Big Gardevalia Open Gardens Festival is back on after a COVID lull that's in great. April. April next That's year. That's so good. And I've just um we've just I've just Googled Gardevalia Festival while we've been talking to you. So it's G A R D I V A L I A dot com dot A U and there's links on there to the open gardens. You can and there's a calendar and maps and heaps of information on there. Um so people can go and check out the information there and get prepped for April. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for all the help you've given in in publicising because we do raise a lot of money for charity through it. Absolutely. And, um, yeah, thank you to you for your time and your knowledge that you bring onto the show. So I'll be back again in a couple of weeks. Good. Can't wait, Meryl. Have a great Bye. day. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay. And we do have another listener... Anna in Malvern, good morning. Hello. Nope. No, Anna's gone. Anna, if you're still listening, give us a call again. Um, I think we have lost you. All right, back on to what goes on yes. in these food growing class that you t- yes. unit that you teach. Um, so students are given a plot each. Five square meters. And is there certain plants that they have to that you guys give yeah. them to grow, or do they get to select some? No. So it's it's uh, as Chloe was hinting. There's a plan. Yep. Everything's provided. Yep. Um, so it, it in time on tradition, there's late tomatoes go in super late, although we get them going in January, and uh, they're at the back, and then it's um, zucchinis, beans slash peas, lettuce, New Zealand yam, carrots, leeks broccoli charred silver beet rainbow charred silver beet yep. everyone has to do the same thing so that we can you know if it's a class of 50 for example we can we can just see in people's individual ma- management and maintenance styles so it's up to them to look after it in whatever way yeah. they want 
your little plot. Yes, true. I mean, like every, week, every week yeah. there's, yeah. A, there's a prac theme yeah. Yeah. that okay. we go through. So, for example, you know, they're given pea straw to mulch with. So it's a... Um, so in, in a sense, it does become quite uniform, although that's spectacular, though, when you've got splashes of colour, say, from the chard, then with the mm. differential height and leaf shape and texture, it's um, it, it never gets old. I mean, every mm. year, and also how quickly things grow, because all right, we plant them in, uh, they're planted out in early March, and so there's enough, the soil is warm enough. It's very exposed down there as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that's very clear is because of the uh, you know good solar access and, and air circulation we're still producing zucchinis up to the, the record is first end of the first week of june wow now oh. whereas when you if you do late successional planting of zucchinis in an average suburban setting the shadows from houses and trees are so terrible you end yep. up with powdery mildew so quickly yeah so it's a bit of that's been a revelation over the last yeah. ten or so years that I've been I've been doing this, um, um, and the tomatoes too. If we if if you know we usually they're in a fifteen centimeter pot. We get students to plant them deep, so we usually have tomatoes. But there's something about tomatoes and sugars that they're usually a bit mushy, mushy. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but. Lots, I've had lots of donations of relish and pickles over the years. <laughs> <laughs> no more. No, no. Um, the, the New Zealand yams, the ochre are fascinating. These little pink cigar-shaped tubers that are um, popular in New Zealand but actually come from the Andes. Mm. Um, the carrots are magnificent. Um, you know, yeah. And um, so then, even though semester's over, students are encouraged or allowed to come back and then they have choice. Right. Okay. So last year, for example, the, the plots continued, that year's plots continued into about late January before everything was out, ploughed up, and then there's a fallow year. So then we, we usually, we have a um, two areas that we use. So then the, the area that was fallow the year before is obviously this year's plots. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you grow a cover crop? Try to, um, yeah. So uh, Rowan, my colleague in the nursery, has been very good on that in the last few years. But um, one, one of the issues that comes up is that you've really got to plough your cover crop in before um, it goes to seed. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, I mean, yeah, the best laid plans sometimes, to be honest. But, yeah, yeah so, no, we do. And we, we get students to sow those seeds now. Now, we didn't do that when you were doing the mm, subject, Chloe, no. doing green manure, right? So, yep. you know, um, lupins or peas or, or just rye. So mixing it all in. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. But I think one one thing that's really occurred to us in the last few years is that this little model of pr- pr- providing all the plants, having a defined area, having a plan, is actually a really good. Um, yeah, it's a good model for a, for a sort of new types of community gardens, if you will, or, or communal, or short term, uh, public growing, yep. right? Because not everybody wants to have a plot that's in a community garden forever. But if you're if you're renters, for example, or you're a family that just wants to learn, you can. You know, I think you could provide packages where people look after some, uh, you know, have a have a veggie plot in a community garden food production space for say six months or a year, yeah. and then someone else gets a turn. Mm-hmm. So, but I'm working on that. I'm actually trying to cost it out properly at the moment because mm-hmm. otherwise, it just gets sort of subsumed into the university budget. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm yeah. trying to think that through. It, it is hard to work out that stuff. What's it really costing? Yeah. All the labour. Yeah. I mean, I I always end up propagating all the ochre and lots of, some of the things, and I think, oh, hang on, if this was properly costed, mm. yeah, yeah, I know. I, I really enjoy watching, um, you know, seeing your posts on Instagram with the well, from a teaching perspective, 
and from a you know yeah. a garden perspective with what you're doing with the students and some of the you know yeah some of the food that you do grow is a little bit left of center cassava <laughs> uh, and, and all the sweet mm. potato you, do you yes. do a lot of yeah a lot of sweet potato but that's yeah that's a, almost I, i'll put that in the easy category mm. although there are the the variety differences are important so there is there is a type of sweet potato that is sold at the big green shed slash temple, right? As it's been called this morning, that I is not a good producer. But the standard orange ones, the standard purple one, are very good in Melbourne. So I've had this, you know, ten year, no, eight year relationship with Fair Share for their yeah. growing program. Since twenty summer of twenty sixteen into seventeen, we've been planting sweet potatoes and we get these huge harvests. It's just that. Yeah, so sweet potatoes are very forgiving. Cassava, not so much. Yeah. That's a genuine heat-loving plant. Um, however, if you have an El Nino summer and it's very long, yep. then you can produce okay roots. But then there are some communities, not all, that like eating cassava leaves. Mm-hmm. And they're prolific, so there's no problem there. Mm-hmm. So there's just tricks. And so one of them, for example, is you need uh, mother stock or parent stock to... Um, and something like cassava, which will always rot in the ground, even in a mild winter, you have to have it growing in huge pots in preferably a polytunnel. But the trick is zero irrigation for six months. Yeah. Just dry them out. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, that's why it's become such a globally significant food crop because they're drought tolerant. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. So, I don't, I don't know. Um I yeah, should lit- literally with, write a book one day. You should. Yeah, yes, you should. You should. Yeah. With, those, with those tubers, like with a potato, you can yep. sort of cut out the eye and put yep. the eye in. What's I've Because I've never grown those sorts of tuber before. How does that work? So um, with sweet potato, it's just a matter of inducing adventitious shoots, meaning just making them produce shoots from the tuber. Um, and they'll do that. If you have a warm spot in your house, say above a fridge or you know a hot water system or something, that will definitely bring it on. But even just in a cupboard you'll yeah. see them you might have even experienced that yeah. where they just suddenly shoot um i mean i yeah a, a heating mat um like chloe mentioned before is good just just sweet potatoes in a shallow tray of potting mix on a mat or in a polytunnel uh somewhere really warm will shoot in time you know let's say by no, late november you just pull them off the slips yeah. and stick them straight in the ground yeah, okay so sweet potatoes are an ipomia morning glory family they are re- they strike from cuttings. It's ridiculously easy. Um, or the speaking of TikTok trends before, I mean, a few years ago, a student said, <laughs> contact me and said, Chris, have you heard of TikTok? I'm like, yeah, but it scares me. <laughs> She's, yeah, it's scary. It's a psychic vortex. But yeah. you need to know sweet potato sprouting is a trend. It's gone nuts. Really? So, so it's, it, what it is is people putting sweet potatoes suspended in jars of water okay. mm-hmm. and then letting them – I think it was a lockdown thing yeah. again letting, yeah. the, letting the vines just climb up as an indoor plant, which is kind mm-hmm. of – I mean, for a, seems a bit strange. But anyway, yeah, sure enough, I went on and there it was. So, mm-hmm. And that's a kind of primary school thing we all remember right, with yeah. potatoes. You can do the same with sweet potatoes. But I'd put sweet potatoes in the easy category as long as it's full blasting sun. Yeah. Um, yeah, like some a lot of plants we know, they do okay foliage-wise in the shade, but you won't get much tuber production. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and then, um, yeah, yeah. so it's a, it's a mix of things, that just a few tricks, but some things are relatively easy, some things are suboptimal for sure. Yeah, or there's sort of certain things you need to do, like put the cassava in a dry pot. Yeah, because cassava is you grow from cuttings. Yeah. 
they're not really truly a tuber. They're just a, a sort of large root yeah. that has, has a cortex yeah. so that you can't propagate from cassava so-called tubers. Yeah. Um, but again, from cuttings, ridiculously easy. And um, in fact, as long as they're warm, you can leave the cuttings lying around for months and months and they'll still strike. Yeah. Right. yeah. Amazing. Yeah. What a, yeah. What can be a very important crop in coming years, I think. There's something about elevated CO2 in the atmosphere that's going to affect them, but um, I'll have to double-check that. But uh, in terms of heat tolerance, they're unbelievable. Mm. If you had a 40-degree day in Melbourne uh, in summer and everything else is looking a bit sad, cassava's just shimmering. It's it's mm. sort of phenomenal to look at it. Um, just love it. Can, can grow optimally, according to a colleague of mine who worked in Mozambique, can grow optimally between 30 and 40 degrees, which is very rare. Mm. Yeah, okay. For, for, for food, hot. really hot. Yeah, Loves right. it. Genius. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right, we've got a couple of questions to get to. Um, a caller has um, asked, oh, they don't want to go on the, <clears throat> they don't want to go on the phone, um, about having slugs in compost. Is it a bad thing or how to fix and balance it? Um, is it got something to do with being too dry or too wet? I'd say it's probably a bit too wet if it's got excessive amount of slugs. Um, they're not necessarily a bad thing, though. I mean, they're, you know, decomposing material. Mm. Um, I had the coolest. Um, have you seen the the white and uh, with the red triangle slug? I think it's actually called the red triangle slug. I had one of those last summer. Really? Mm, and no. They're bizarre. They literally yeah, are white. They're quite large and it's got a red triangle on its back. I, wow. one of those. I know. Indigenous? To, uh, I or, think they yeah. are actually, yeah. Um, so I had one of those in my compost. So I would suggest it's probably too wet. Um, maybe add in some more browns, particularly some dry browns. Yep. So some leaf litter, Shre shredded litter, paper. Sh shredded newspapers. Shredded easy. cardboard, so long as it's, you know, unwaxed cardboard. Yeah. Yeah. Add in some more browns. Give it a good aerate. Yeah. It should be fine. Yep. Yep. Get the either the aerated drill thing into it yep. or pitchfork and, and zhuzh it around. Yep. Yep. Okay, uh, Susie, our lovely producer, is listening, is messaged in, and she says shout-out to her favourite local nursery, the Valley Road Nursery near Geelong, opposite Aww, the bowling club. Brad and Jeff, hello, boys. <laughs> <laughs> Friendly and knowledgeable staff like nurseries used to be, and, yeah, please support your local nurseries, and she loves Pointons in Essendon as well. That's mm. still a good one. Mm -hmm. yeah. They've been there for a long time. Um, and she's also very glad that Gardevalia is going to be running again. Um, all right, it is. We've got five minutes to go. That went so quickly. It always it does, did, doesn't it? Did, it? Did, didn't it? <laughs> what? Mm. I want to keep talking. No, no. <laughs> I want to keep talking. Is there any plans that we haven't gotten to? Uh, we I think we've everything? covered off my. Did you have something you wanted to talk about here, Sandra? I well, on Thursday we had the um, the burn, launch of the Burnley Green Roof Plant Guide. That I that was my plant to bring in. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's a green roof guide. It's a first for Australia. It's based on about ten to fifteen plus years of research, and um, yeah, authored by John Rayner, Rachel Bathgate, Nick Williams, and Claire Farrell. And it's just come out as a uh, collaboration with City of Melbourne. Where can people get it from? Available online. Um, I think if you just Google Burnley Green Roof Plant Guide, it should. Hopefully, okay. come up. It will take you to Gerg, which is the green 
Infrastructure Green Research Group. Thank you. Yes, that's the one. Um, yeah, so that's on their website um, and it's really interesting because it basically has various types of green roofs and the recommendations for plants that can go on there and then it has um, case studies of what has been a growing industry in Melbourne. Perfect. So. Perfect. Mm. Beautiful. Thanks for bringing that in. Um, Chloe, just quickly, Sprout School, have you still got any places left? Uh, no, so Sprout School's finished for spring, but it'll open again in autumn next year. When um, will those openings open? So probably, oh gosh, when did I think? I think it was around mid-Feb. Okay. I, um, so people can jump on my website, beentheredugthat.com. And jump on the wait list if they want to do it that way. I might give a really quick plug as well. If anyone fancies travelling yeah. around Ireland and England with me next year in autumn. So in September next year, we're going for 19 nights to Britain and Ireland. And I'm taking around you around some of my favourite gardens in Ireland and England. Um, great little tour, small group tour, um, organised with Travel Right. So if people just go to the Travel Right website, which is Travel R-I-T-E, and then they look up Britain and Ireland garden tour, I'll be there. I'm excited to get some passionate plant people on Especially that Especially curated because it's Ireland is a special place for Ireland you. has a very special place so in my heart. So it's not just random gardens that no, you've selected. No, I'm, I'm married to an Irishman. And um, the, the gardens I'm taking you to are literally some of my favourites. I go there every time I go to Ireland um, if you've never been to some of these. And some of them are off the beaten track. They're not the typical ones that you'd know. June Blake's garden is just amazing, jaw-droppingly beautiful, and it changes with the seasons, so it's really fun to look at in different seasons. Um, and off the coast of Bantry, there's this beautiful little island which is this weird microclimate unto itself and it grows you know Australian native plants it almost looks a little bit Mediterranean and apparently it gets this weird warm warmth. Is this the one with the succulent like sort of rock face might be the garden? one Garnish Island possibly yeah, yeah. It's, in the yeah. South. No. it's yeah. off the coast of Bantry so southwest yeah. coast of Cork yeah mm. weirdest little spot you gotta catch a little dinghy ferry to get out there lots of Arbutus and Nido it's just <laughs> sorry that's a, <laughs> that's a ref, yeah it's just yep. the most incredible spot. So I'm really mm. excited to, pe to take people around. We're going to the RHS Wisley Flower Show yep. in England as well. So, yeah, love and to have you along. Sounds yeah. amazing. Yes. Awesome. Very much. That I, Well, I'd love to jump on. Maybe <laughs> I'll think about it. All right. That has brought us to the end of another gardening show for this Sunday morning. So... Thank you, Chris, Chloe and Sandra Thanks, for Chloe. coming Chloe. in and sharing your knowledge and your time. Bern, thank you for keeping us in line in, in the studio next door. And thanks to Liz, who does our socials. Um, have a lovely Sunday, everyone. Get outside, get some sunshine. And we'll be back again next Sunday at 7.30. Have a lovely day. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.